Today's show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Cufflinks.com. Elevate your style when you walk out in the morning. Go to Cufflinks.com slash DVR and use code ENDGAME30 to get 30% off all officially licensed Marvel products. Come on, man. I still I want to get those little Hulk gloves. Those little, little Hulk Cufflink gloves. I love them. Cufflinks.com slash DVR. You can also use the code DVR20. At any time, get 20% off your order, and we always appreciate cufflinks.com. Go give them a visit. Check them out. They have so much stuff. It's not just the geeky stuff. It's also the high-class wearable art. That's right. Cufflinks.com slash DVR. Go there today. Welcome back to Podcast Winterfell and Daily DVR. This is a simulcast. This is my Season 6 rewatch. Ladies and gentlemen, I've made it to Season 6. Now, before I go on, I do want to remind you to go to DVRpodcast.com. And I do want to tell you, if you've been uh, listening along to this and you're a new listener, I know we have a ton of new listeners. The season's coming up. This is not the normal uh, format for the podcast. During the season, we're going to be releasing four podcasts. An initial reaction after the show is over with myself and Heath Solo. On Monday, DJ Tim Hines is going to be doing a live fan call-in that you can take part in. On Wednesday, Heath and I record our deep dive, and then on Friday, Tracy and Mike are going to do feedback, book reader stuff, all types of awesome stuff. We're going to have four shows, so it's not just going to be my voice that you're going to hear throughout the season. It's going to be many others, including your own. Now, before I do get to the rewatch, I just this weekend have been talking to these guys from guestathrone.com. It's an easy way to create a free death pool. You can predict which characters will live or die during season eight, and you earn points for each correct guess. You can create a group, compete against your friends, your family. I think I do it with some of my friends here, some there. You know what I'm saying? You can be in many different groups, or you can join groups that are are already there. So many people are already doing this. Um, the selection ends. You got to do this before episode one. So you got a week. I'm trying to think, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Heath is so good with lists and guessing. I think he's going to get it. And I'm, I have a few people who I think are going to die, but I'm not sure. You got to lock it down. It's a hard choice. <laughs> Go to guess the throne. It's really cool. You'll have a lot of fun. All right, let's get into my season six rewatch, baby. I literally just stopped watching. I uh, just finished the last episode with Danny and Varys and uh, who else was uh, uh, on the ship there with her? Tyrion riding to Westeros. And man, let me tell you, I'm excited. I am excited. I I was a little Season four and five did bring me down a little bit. And I think that that is not only a case of the show making some choices that a lot of us didn't agree with. Let's be honest. I love the show. I'm not going to be a show hater. I am not anti-Dan and Dave at all. I think they have done a fantastic job of being first-time showrunners and shepherding this show and seeing that scene, uh, though, yes, I know, how did Varys get all the way over there to come all the way back? <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, bringing, bringing Dorne and the Queen of Thorns and that part of Westeros into Danny's um, empire 
It's a little silly that he went all the way back. But you know what? I was still excited and I loved it. And I am ready to go into season seven. But let's talk about season six because that's what this podcast is about. As I entered this season, as I said in my uh, exuberant intro, I was a little down. I really was. Um, The extreme and constant battle for power and the throne with Tywin and the Lannisters and the war of the five kings and the subsequent two-season cleanup of that, um, which not only included Tywin's death and Joffrey's death and the ascension of Tommen and the ascension of Cersei and Jaime into really doing nothing except messing it all up this season. <laughs> um, it, it was tough stuff. And I, you know, the Sansa and Ramsey, the Theon, it was a lot of, I keep on using the word visceral and I will just continue to, it, it was tough stuff. This is a tough show. And this is something that has always uh, struck me as quite strange. And maybe it says something about America, or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> but this is a violent, horrible, often sadistic, disturbing television show. Um, people's heads are routinely lopped off. People's lives are destroyed by another person's whims or fancies. Uh, and it can be really tough to sit and rewatch this show. And that doesn't mean I don't love it. And it doesn't mean I don't look forward to sitting down on this mic and talking about it. I do. But I've even thought about my own life in the time in these weeks that I've been uh, sitting here talking with you all. And um, it kind of has affected me. And I, I, think that, uh, I think that I've been really uh, in my mind thinking about it and, and um, relating it to our own world and my own life. And I'm not going to enter into those discussions on the podcast, but we all do that internally. And I think that's something to be considered when we're all on the Twitter or with friends and talking and enjoying this show coming back, that there is a point here. And if you all had an opportunity to listen to the great podcast that I did with Lucifer Means Lightbringer uh, that I just released on Friday, go and listen to it, last podcast, Winterfell. We got into that too, talking about the journey of Danny and John and just the journey of all these characters and what they've been through and the trauma and the reality of it and the world that they live in. And so often because Game of Thrones is a cultural and worldwide phenomenon, we relate the events to the events of our own lives and of our current political, socioeconomical, cultural uh, goings-ons. And uh, they're not really relatable um, <laughs> because <laughs> this is a different world. This is a different world. Um, why did they not show Brienne kill Stannis? 
um, had a little discussion on our, uh, Facebook page and, uh, AU pack mule brought up the point that it may have something to do with the behind the scenes goings on between the actor and how he felt his role was and the directors and such. Um, but do those things affect the actual show the way we, our own minds affect our own journey on this show? Um, these questions come to me as I watch the show and we, we find out about Amelia Clark having like two brain aneurysms while filming this damn thing. And I just think uh, watching the Battle of the Bastards and you watch the behind the scenes and the improvisation, the technical improvisation that went on and, and the actual, the pain and the sweat that goes into just filming it, let alone pretending that it actually happened in that fashion. And this, uh, this is a tough show. This is a tough show. There's crossover in so many ways to our lives our struggles. And this is why we watch television. This is why we read books. We tell each other stories. Our lives are a story. You all think about your own life and the way you perceive yourself and the way you perceive how you fit into your group, family, society, culture, affects the way you treat those around you and the way you see the world. And uh, just makes me think of that. And this show is a journey and I'm really looking forward to this upcoming season, but even just getting into season seven, having finished season six, because after the power vacuum of season four and five, which was, was it filled? Not really, as we saw. Season six culminates in Danny, John, and Cersei uh, standing up and filling that vacuum. Ably, uh, with desire, maybe a little less so on John's part. <laughs> and we march on into this new light. After the Red Wedding and the Starks and Rob were effectively taken out and Joffrey was king and Tywin as the Hand was firmly in power, we thought, we saw the way that Tywin wasted this, that the errors that he made in his judgment and his thirst for absolute dominance by not making good with the Queen of Thorns and others and living on and peacefully because he actually had that power, right? It was actually his lack of confidence in himself, if you think about it, that led him to allow Joffrey to act the way he acted. But it's a family trait because Uncle Kevin does the same damn thing. He sits by and he lets everything happen, taking no part in it, thinking he's above it in some way, that only his own personal dramas are of importance, not these dramas which he should really be involved in. Uh, it's an interesting 
um, kind of theme that runs through uh, the Lannisters in general, when to take power, when not. Their dance, the dance of the dragons, the dance of the Lannisters, really, they, they dance back and forth. Jamie does it. Cersei does it. Tywin does it. Tyrion does it. Should I take this power? Should I not? When I have it, how much should I exert of it? It's a dance that all of all people, I would think, having read a bit of history and lived a little bit of a life, uh, struggle with not only in their personal life, but those who are thrust into being um, the pow- having power over many people. How do you exert it? How much? Something Danny goes through. But for the Lannisters especially, it's not really until Cersei has nothing. Tommen is dead and she... I mean, her reaction to it is staggering. She's just like, okay, he's dead. She firmly takes herself as queen after the action of basically killing everyone. Because let's remember, when Cersei takes out the Sept, she doesn't just take out Marjorie and Lancel and um, uh, and the High Sparrow uh, she doesn't just take, she takes out all the aristocrats, all of her power structure that existed in King's Landing. She takes them all out because who else would have been there? And she's left with the vacuum that she creates. She fills herself by then on even the lower levels, and we don't get to see too much of this in season seven. Perhaps if we had had more episodes or more time, we would see it. Her choosing, oh, this person is here. This person goes here. You are now this per- Now the son of the person who died here. How do they react? You know, but because she's so strong, she sets the tone and Not that I think that that was the way the Lannisters should have always acted, but it's like the old adage, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's only so long that you can threaten this power, right? And then when you use it, you have to be ready for someone to use it against you. And both Tywin and Cersei were unable to see that. Tywin allowed Joffrey to be killed under his nose, Or, I mean, I guess there are still theories that Tywin knew about it. I don't think he did. I guess maybe on the last podcast, I I thought that he did. (laughs) Now I don't. But Cersei, the High Sparrow, this season appears. And one of the great things about this season is how the season begins with Cersei pulling up uh, to the Sept of Baelor to see Tywin's body. And the season ends with that place blowing up, but that's also where Cersei begins her walk. And it, it, there's so much symbolism in and around that area, that building that really shows how she has faltered this season and to destroy everything is really her only option. (laughs) She doesn't really have, I, I mean, she doesn't really have in the position she has put herself 
Um, she doesn't really have many options than that. And it's the, it's the way that the Lannisters and this, this action always was going to go. She was always going to become a mad queen. Um, or if, if in some alternate universe, say Tywin had ascended to the throne himself, he would have ended up acting in this way. He would have just killed everyone early on. Um, so this was the way that the Lannisters, you, you can only, you know, you, you can, you're on the edge of that knife and, uh, they, they are the ones who are going to cut and they do. And that scene itself is amazing. Just amazing. The journey that she goes through and how quickly the high sparrow, uh, back to that takes over. You see Tywin and all his letter writing and everyone, you know, all the, the Martells and they're going to go back and we're going to, you know, we have to do all this politicking and Dorn is like this and, you know, High Garden and, and then the High Sparrow just comes in and sees that opening and plays it perfectly. And he really doesn't get enough credit, I would say, in the fandom if people are so into celebrating the badasses, the High Sparrow took over in an instant. And he, if anyone, is a mirror to the Night's King or the Night King. That is the mirror to the Night King, is the High Sparrow. Because the efficiency in which he waged war up until the point where he made his fatal flaw, which they all, which hubris is the fatal flaw of so many of these people. And thinking that he had put Cersei in her place and that the agreement that he and Marjorie had set upon, which I don't think involved scarring her brother's head, but did involve him accepting his punishment her coming to the faith and then Cersei would be the one who was punished. And Marjorie has then outduped her own grandmother, which she was not in enough communication with to figure this out. Um, and what else was Marjorie to do? What else was she to do? Sit around and wait for someone to save her. Her plan was the best plan in a sense because, yeah, her brother got messed up there, but it was obvious that the High Sparrow was going to try to take out Cersei, would at least leave a little room, a little wiggle room for Marjorie to get Tommen to try to take him out or enact some kind of power if that was the second part of her plan. If she even had one, I mean, she's in a freaking cell, you know, Cersei created this. And she created it because of her own insecurities and because she felt that Marjorie was the flaxen-haired beauty who the, uh, what was that, the frog witch lady said was going to take her out. And in the end, does that mean it all comes down to magic? We haven't talked about it a lot, I remember, on the pod, but that, who was her name, Maggie the Witch, I think, or Maggie the Frog or something? Where did she come from? 
Maybe a book person could tell me about that because did is that the key <laughs> to all of this? There is some kind of magical prophecy here that Cersei believed in. Whether or not it's true doesn't matter because she believed it. She made it true. And all of the actions that led to the death of all of her children are directly, directly traceable back to her and her family, but her. And uh, that's where she ends up. She thinks she can do it. She puts Marjorie in a position where she has to outflank. So the deal that Jamie and the Queen of Thorns and Cersei and Kevin come up with doesn't work because Marjorie and Tommen have their own deal. And the deal that deal is headed by Marjorie because she has said, screw this. I, I got to take Cersei out. She knows the real head of the beast. What was she supposed to do? I I mean, she did pretty good in my eyes. And the way that Marjorie realizes what's happening at the end, I wish she had at some point been able to be queen. I really do. Real queen and really made some decisions. She should have just freaking put Tommen in a room and started doing shit because she could have gotten stuff done. She was the real hope for the crown. I don't know. I really like Marjorie. I think that she, I was really surprised and I didn't remember, and that's why I love rewatching, how quickly she figures out what's going on. She's looking around and the uh, freaking High Sparrow keeps going on and on and on. And then she just finally comes up to him and he says, do you understand this? Cersei knows that by not showing up, there are consequences. If she is not afraid of those consequences, then she knows that those consequences will not occur. We must leave now. And then they won't let him out. And I had remembered that they locked, that the kids, the little, um, the little birds had locked the doors from the outside. But really, it was the faith militant wasn't allowing anyone to leave. So that, and then the the look on the face of the High Sparrow, but Marjorie knew exactly what was going on because she knew the whole time that her real enemy was Cersei. And maybe that shows too that Marjorie too was looking past the High Sparrow, which I think she was. But I mean, come on, what is Marjorie, 24, 23, already the... Th- what, Renly, Joffrey, Tommen, just like Sansa, right? You got three three brides for three uh, brothers. It's um, what else was she supposed to do? But in the end, Cersei took the dec- decisive action, not even thinking about how it would affect her son, the land, the kingdom, anything. It was for herself. It was to retain power. And we'll see how that continues in our next season, in season seven, which I can't wait to get to. The scene when Cersei is also crowned queen by my man, Kyburn, who will take control of the whites. 
my prophecy will come true. Axel the frog speaketh. She just looks at Jamie. Their son just died. She killed everybody, people they knew their whole lives. The show progresses so quickly that we forget the the kind of almost demure, sarcastic Cersei who showed up at Winterfell um, to talk, you know, and to, to meet the Starks all lined up together and now is crowned queen. What a journey we've been on. This last episode of season six, they really did a fantastic job of kind of capping that and fully moving into the next era of this show, uh, the the fight against the White Walkers. Just amazing stuff, man. Wow. I'm still, I don't mean this to be um, less, less uh, coherent than others. I hope it's not. But um, I was really excited. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Something that I was also pleasantly surprised by, and that's Arya. While watching season five, I had the thought they should have condensed all of Arya's journey um, with the faceless to one season. I mean, basically, she gets there, she trains with the bodies, she meets the waif, she starts the game. She fights a bit. She's told to be no one, to put away Arya Stark. She's given the opportunity to go on a mission. She subverts that mission to kill. She is then punished by being blinded. She regains her sight. This season, after several battles on a street with the waif, she's given the chance again to serve the god of death. Ah. And she subverts that again by not killing the actress, but by slapping the wine out of the hand and telling her, you better watch that one. She wants you dead. I can't do an Ari impression. She then again is challenged by the waif who kills the actress. Arya kills the waif using the skills that she learned against her by fighting in the dark, luring her into this room that she somehow, I don't know, it was like a locker she paid for. Uh, It was like a storage facility. (laughs) Just like the guy was like, you're not living in there, are you? Okay, fine. Just whatever. Do whatever your candle shit, but just don't live in there. I could get in trouble for that, you know. We're not zoned for that. Um, she kills the waif. She goes back. She tells Yakin, I am Arya Stark, and I am going home. He smiles. She goes home. She kills Walter Frey. Walter Frey. Um, that's Arya's journey. Season five, I was really not looking forward to the whole part that happened in season six. I really felt they could have done all of this in one season and the Walder Frey stuff could have been all of season six. 
Arya comes back. Hey, maybe she sees the hound. Maybe she's walking through Westeros. You know what I'm saying, right? Like Arya, she kills this person. Now, spoiler alert, Lady Stoneheart. I know people had said this, that she fulfills some of that, right? Um, Which I don't even know what it is because I don't read the books, but people told me, come on, give me a break here. I do a podcast. Uh, That would have been cool. That would have been cool. But I wasn't that disappointed. I liked it. I really enjoyed it this time. I wasn't questioning it. I was just watching it. Now I will admit, the stab by a, like an eight-inch knife into her gut three times, falling into disgusting water that people probably poo-poo and pee-pee and spit into all day long, because that is what happened with bodies of water that flowed through cities, would have killed her. But you know what? I'm not going to get hung up on that. I'm just not. I let it go, and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it because I think similarly to the Danny continuing lessons and learning, the John lessons and learning, Bran lessons and learning, this is what this show is about. Let's admit it. A large part of Game of Thrones, as my friend LML said, the journey of learning, of self-discovery, of growth, is a large part, is the major part, perhaps, of what Game of Thrones is about. And with Arya, she had to be given that second chance. And that second chance had to teach her that she will always be Arya Stark, but she will always serve the God of Death. So in the end, it all worked out. That is why my man, Yakin, smiled. Because he knows each student has their own journey. We don't all follow the same path, right? But Arya's path still leads her to the same place. She will serve the many-faced God. She will do it in Westeros. She will do it as Arya Stark, but she will also do it as no one because no one is Arya Stark and Arya Stark is no one. It's beautiful. I thought it was great. I got a little too. I gave myself chills talking about that. I really enjoyed it. Now, yes, it would have been fun to see Arya do a little bit more preparation at the phrase, giving it a couple of episodes, showing us how her technique had advanced, but that's not part of what the faceless do. We've not seen that in this show. I wanted to know a little bit more about the magic, but I became okay with that. I liked the way they went to Walder when he was talking about Blackfish and Jamie. And then they go back to him and you think he's just, again, he's, you know, there he is with Jamie. Now Jamie's there, right? Before he was given orders. Then he's waking up and he's eating, you know? <laughs> Where's Blackwater? He's right there, sir. Great scene. Really great scene. Was that Arya talking to Jamie? Hmm. I don't know. I like that kind of mystery. 
I hope they play with that. I hope they have the time to play more with that and have Arya uh, use her skills more in season eight. Because all I remember in season seven is something that's going to happen with Sansa that I'm probably not going to like too. Maybe I'll end up liking that more. (laughs) I don't think so. But upon rewatch, I was way more satisfied with Arya's journey. And though I'm still not sure if that is Arya, I'll tell you why. I mentioned that I met uh, my son's, a couple friends of my, uh, my friend, my son's friend, his parents. And uh, the dad was saying that he had a theory. And then I remember that other people had had this theory too, that uh, he didn't claim it. He was just kind of talking about it. He was very interested in it. And uh, did a good job of convincing me that that's not Arya, right? That that's the waif. And then I kind of said, does it really matter? And he was like, yeah, you know, I guess, I don't know. It's like, kind of think, does it really matter? How much would that matter? Because did we get foreshadowing of a situation such as that? to arise, we didn't see it in season seven, but in season eight, where when she kills Yakin and he just keeps, she keeps on taking off the masks and who really is he, which reminds me of the great show dollhouse. I always speak up. I'm not the hugest Joss Whedon fan. I think, uh, I mean, I can't remember. He made both of those Avengers movies. I loved Dollhouse. That's my favorite thing he ever did. Uh, even though I have this Serenity painting behind me, though I do like uh, Serenity too. But uh, I love Dollhouse because of that reason, which is it brings up that thought of who is a person, but who they are now, right? You are, we all are different people. One of the things that has always fascinated and frustrated me is human beings' inability to deal with the contradiction of other human beings while acting contradictory. This is the main, um, this is the default position of humanity, which is to be contradictory. (laughs) But we all act like, oh no, a character has to act the same way. We act the same way. They wouldn't do that. And then you look at your friend and you're like, why did they act that way? But you think you can figure it out, right? But they can't. And you can't figure it out when you act their <laughs> way. Human beings are contradictory. We do not ever, people who think that they're, yeah, that's just me. I'm the same person. Then you look, you say, what are you talking about? You like this and this, and you're like this. And then you said this, and you said that. Because living in the moment, we are what we appear to be right now and only right now. In the next instant, we could be something different. And it, you have to accept that in human beings and people. And to accept that in Arya, um, to accept that this character has become an agent of death, whether she is Arya Stark and killing the people that are attached to that story 
Is that important? You know, in the end, she serves the God of death. So whether she's the waif or Arya, it doesn't really matter. Um, but then, of course, people go, well, she has the memories of Arya. Hey, this is a magical world. Give me a break. Taking a little break to talk to you about cufflinks.com. You know, that's my favorite place. I was over on that internet and I was searching around and I said, I want to look at some cool stuff. So I went to cufflinks.com slash DVR. Use code ENDGAME30 and get 30% off your order. Official Marvel licensed products. I'm really looking forward to Endgame. That's going to be really cool. There, I, a lot of people are doing their rewatches, actually, of all the Marvel movies. I know the Rousseau brothers are doing it on Twitter or Instagram. What's this, like 22 or 23 movies? And you have to start in order. You have to start with like Iron Man, Captain Marvel. Go online and figure it out. And while you're there, go to cufflinks.com slash DVR and use code Endgame30 and get yourself some cool Marvel stuff. Now back to the show. Let's talk about John. At the end of last season, our hero, John Schnew, the bastard podcaster, oh wait, that's he Snolo, died. And at the beginning of this season, he's still dead. And he spends two episodes sitting on a, or lying down on a piece of wood, mostly naked, with people around him. Uh, worried that other people are going to kill them. (laughs) I love this. I loved it when it first happened. I loved it here. I love that it throws Davos and Melisandre and John and Sam and Pip or whoever that dude's name is together. And then Tormund comes. I love it all. I thought that this whole way that they dealt with What's going to happen after John dies was the kind of thing that if I was in a writer's room or I was talking, it was Mike and I, and we were talking about something, I would be, this is great. This is great stuff because the little banter that happens between Alistair and Davos about, you know, I would like... I'd like some food too when we leave. It's great. The way that Alistair attempts to, um, what, what should I say? Make up for, explain away the murder <laughs> of the commander is uh, very funny. Not, not, not funny, but it just shows the way that these tropes in the show, the honor and the tradition are so easily tossed aside when someone feels like their idea is better. But when they want to bolster their dumb idea, they will most definitely use honor and tradition and rules to do so. And that's what Alistair falls right kind of back in line. We did it to save the watch. You know, these wildings, these rapists, these murderers, these... Oh, wait, I'm describing the Night's Watch, <laughs> right? Like it's, you're the same people, Alistair, get a grip. Uh, you, your buddy was slint, come on. Um, it's great though. I like the way they do this and the back and forth with Melisandre and then you get to see her take off her amulet and she is this old lady. She has glamored those around her. Um, 
fascinating, giving you a hint, a foreshadowing of the power she has. For a long time, I wondered, why did they do that? Why did they show that scene? And it was a way to show the power she did have, right? Her power was that strong. She's not only changing her appearance, but when men touched her, when men made love to her, I don't know if it was so much making love as having sex or fucking, but uh, I'll call it making love. Um, They felt that body, right? That's a magic we can't understand and a magic we have to accept in this show. So when she brings John back to life, which is amazing, Kit Harrington having a panic attack when he realized, why am I here? I shouldn't be here. The Davos face, Liam Cunningworth, Cunningham, sorry. My God, what an actor. That is what sells John coming back to life. His face and Melisandre too. Just the, what the, filled with not only amazement and surprise, but horror and fear and, and just like worlds colliding, like this cannot wait. Magic is, this is, even though he's seen that smoke baby and he knew he was the one who wanted Melisandre to do it, right? The guy who hated the magic, whose son was killed by it because of it. His, his, his king dies because of it. He fought against it. He was thrown into a cell. He, he learned how to read. You know, we later find out, of course, his dear Shireen was, we knew, but he finds out burned at the stake, but he's the one who says, Melisandre, bring him back. And she does it. And it's amazing. And they sell it and it worked. And even though I've seen it Many, many times it had been over a year. So, wow, brought me to a little tear in the eye, chills down the spinal. And I was going and John wakes up and there is a difference there. There is a real difference that having watched everything successively from sword bro to fiery teenage guy who read Malcolm X's autobiography for the first time. (laughs) I mean, like, oh, you know, he's going to do to the winter is coming to now. I'm not even playing folks. I was dead. I came back to life. I'm not even going to listen to you when you don't listen to me about the long night and what's coming and what I've been through. And I really liked John's journey this season because it was uneven and it should have been. He died He comes back, and when he comes back, he acts as the commander of the Night's Watch. He puts to death Alistair and Ollie. I'm not even going to get into Ollie. And uh, man, their faces when they, when they're when they're dead, so purple. Um, but then he says, "My watch is ended," and and it's my belief that he makes that decision right there. You know, he's just going with his gut and he's for the first time really shedding the bastardness, the, all this stuff and saying, I'm going to move forward. Now it's not always consistent. Um, the fight, the several fights with Sansa during the season, but then 
the mistake at the Battle of the Bastards, falling for Ramsey after Sansa tells him exactly what's going to happen. Even to the very end, when he's declared king in the north, even though it was Littlefinger and the Vale who saved them. Because if that battle had continued, guess what? He'd be king of the dead, or king of being brought back for the second time, trying to get up to the record that we've already seen. <laughs> trying to break the record here. Um, Thoros would get mad about that. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. He's like, you gotta, I gotta take new photos now, huh? Uh, there is an inconsistency in in John stepping up and in John figuring things out. And it showed by his consistently being haunted by the fact that he died. You can see it almost in his eyes during the Battle of the Bastards. I'm going, I don't want that again. The nothing. You know, in our culture, in our country here in America, hell is seen as the worst place to be, eternally burned or tortured or whatever. But is it? Because as a sci-fi freak, I have often thought to myself, that is not the burning of the sun, which is where hell comes from, of course, is not the worst. It's just a few million miles away where there's nothing, the cold of space, where there's not even air for you to breathe, the absence of anything, right? Arya has been on a quest to become no one, no one, but John was no thing, nothing, right? Arya still exists, but her personality is gone. Who she is is filled with the god of death. She is an agent of that. What John saw was the absence of anything, which to me is truthfully the scariest thing in the world. Nothing. Nothing at all. Think about that. It's hard to think about. <laughs> This show has got me thinking, baby. Um, Sansa coming and they're, and they're, they reuniting is beautiful, but awkward because their relationship was awkward. And I like that they serve that as well, that they talk about that. You know, they try to apologize, but that doesn't really happen. You know, we talk about consistency in a show. But often people are afraid to say something is purposefully inconsistent or it is written that way. It is written, in my belief, that way that John and Sansa have an awkward relationship. And that first scene is like anyone would have, but it doesn't stick. She lies. She doesn't even tell him that she has the veil. I'll get to that when I talk a little bit about Sansa. But with that information, the entire season is changed. That is like, to me, one the entire season pivots on Sansa holding that information from John. And I don't blame Sansa. It's definitely a mistake, a, a complete error in judgment. But what Sansa has been through and who she is and how she views the world and her journey, it does make sense that she would make that decision. 
because she does not trust anyone, uh, nor really should she, nor really should she particularly trust men who spend most of their time talking about power <laughs> and what they're going to do and wars and who they're going to take over. You know, I don't blame her. But without that information, John too languishes. And upon rewatch and knowing going through this season that Sansa has that information and doesn't present it. And when they go to House Glover, House Manderly, House uh, Mormont, I love her so much, Lady Mormont. She's the best. The best. Made me cry. Tear in the eye. Tear down the eye. You didn't heed the call. I can't even say the way she said it. Call. It's so interesting. I love it. If he had known this, it would have changed everything. And that has, that affects John's journey this season, because that's a lot of his journey, right? Um, This season is John coming to grips with leaving the Night's Watch, which remember he was so faithful to. And the decision to leave the Night's Watch is kind of obscured by the fact that he died and was arisen. You know, I mean... No big deal, but it was. Um, You don't really think about that because it happened so quickly at the end of an episode. But think about all the decisions he made previously. He didn't go to war. His brother, his father, his two brothers were missing. He didn't help Sansa, Arya. He didn't help any of them because he he was so dedicated to the Night's Watch and what was going on there. So that was a decision that he made early on. And now he makes a decision to go the other way. And he has a new uh, roster of alliances with Sansa and Davos and Tormund, my man. And the way he navigates these are not always right. And John does regress a bit to sword bro in this season, especially with the Ramsey stuff. But we'll see a different John in season seven. Sansa. Sansa takes charge. We saw her jump out into the snow with Theon. She comes across Brienne and Pod. They save her. That's a great scene. Theon even kills somebody, stands up, you know, leaving Reek behind. Sansa's reunited with John. Her Dalliance's secret meeting with Littlefinger, a back and forth with Brienne about letting John know, trusting people, Brienne questioning, seeing that her she was pledged to Caitlin and to save her daughters to reunite them, and now she's pledged to Sansa, but she questions Sansa, and she should. Sansa is just coming out of a situation in which for her entire life, she couldn't speak her mind. Think about it. In what situation until Sansa arrives at Winterfell? That is the freest she's been in her entire life. And I include when she was with her parents because 
the uh, crushing weight of tradition, of wanting to be a queen, a princess, was uh, all Sansa had at that point. And now, when she hugs John and she stands there, I thought to myself, this is the freest she's ever been. Think about it. She wasn't free when she was with Littlefinger, you know? And even when Brienne saved them and she's coming back, but now she's home and she makes her choices. And those choices are informed by the journey she's been on. And, and like I said, they make sense to me. It's very frustrating that she doesn't tell John about Littlefinger. I mean, that's like the biggest army, right? Isn't the army of the Vale after the Lannister army supposed to be the biggest army in the land? Perhaps some book reader will correct me, but that is a big-ass army. Kind of a light name, though, isn't it, though? Like, when you think about it, if you're like, who's coming? The Vale. It doesn't really sound tough, you know? And it's like the powder blue kind of, isn't it? Aren't they kind of powder blue? There's a, there's a kind of, like, elegance to the Vale that when they arrive, it, it's, a, it's slightly, you know, like if that was the wildlings or the Dothraki coming through at the end of the Battle of the Bastards, they just kind of rode through on their horses. They were like, la-di-da. <laughs> it's very Littlefinger, right? It's kind of dainty. Um, what was I talking about? But uh, yeah, she, I mean, Sansa... tries throughout this season to step up, to assert her will, her opinions, and her importance as a Stark, as a woman, and as a person who has lived through this war and this tragedy just as much as everyone else has, if not more. And it's not uh, always good. And it's not always um, easy to watch because like many who don't have a lot of experience in speaking up at a table with a bunch of dudes sitting there, she sometimes is too much and sometimes not enough. She's learning. And I think by the end of the season, when she and John talk about the fact that she didn't tell him. And he accepts it and she admits to it. She is learning again. She hasn't reached a plateau. She's not a new character. She's still progressing. And she had the opportunity to make that mistake. It almost, it cost the lives of many wildlings as well as Bolton men. They can't all be bad, right? There's good people on both sides. Oh, God, I should take that out of the podcast. <laughs> I was only kidding. Um, I was joking, by the way. Uh, they, um, you know, they come to an agreement there. And the agreement that they kind of come to is, oh, we just got to try our best. We've been through so much, you know, and we have to love each other and we have to trust each other as best we can. And as we'll see um, in season seven and then continuing on into our final season here, that's not always going to be consistent. And having siblings and family, 
I can tell you, as I'm sure you listening can too, people love to make agreements with each other and then break them or stretch them. That is what people do. And John and Sansa will do that. But I thought Sansa's journey this season was more relatable to me than it was when I initially watched it. And I am, I can't say I'm a huge Sansa fan. I'm not the biggest Sansa fan in the world because I don't know. She's just not my favorite. I relate to maybe other characters, but I don't have, I think that the character has actually been written better for this show than people give it credit. And I know I'll get crap for that, but I think it's true. And I think, and I will argue that our fandom and fandom in general does not do well with inconsistency. People, when they analyze books, TV, film, look for consistency. They think that that shows a good character. I don't agree. I don't agree at all. I think the greatest characters in all of all of our stories throughout the history of time are inconsistent, but relatable. And I find Sansa to be entirely inconsistent, but relatable. Um, I put myself in her shoes as best as I can, as we do when we watch these shows. And I think what she's gone through and what she's seen and what her family has gone through and the dream she had when she was that little girl talking about being a princess to now uh, when she gives the last time I saw her, which is when Littlefinger kind of gives her a look saying, I saved everyone. It was you, Sansa, and I will be king. And she's like, you're going to be king? How about I'm queen, homie? She's starting to realize that that world is open to her, which was something that it was not possible before for her. And let's see what happens in season seven. I'll talk about it then. Tyrion doesn't have too much of a journey this season. He's uh, Danny's hand. And he, he too makes mistakes, but in the end, by all coming together, by using a little bit of Danny, a little bit of Tyrion, Grey Worm, Masande, uh, Varys, they figure something out in the end and kill two of the three masters, which was kind of similar to when she burned one in the dragon thing, and that didn't really work. But she's being a little bit tougher this time, and basically she cut off the head of the snake, and she made a decisive move, which was the problem with the Sons of the Harpies and all these other cities, which she didn't want to be like her daddy, um, but she wanted to be strong. And it's about finding a middle path for her. And by listening to other people, and herself too, though, trusting herself, she can come to that. It's a case-by-case basis. Again, I think a lot of Game of Thrones is about you're not just going to get a Superman. Uh, I know we all want someone to act entirely the same way all the time or a character to act that way. But upon looking at this show, I see that all the characters act this way. The Hound, Tyrion, Tywin, Jamie. Arya, which of these have I not 
have not kind of gone back on their word or done something different. I think that shows complexity. Now, I'm not saying that it was all perfectly written, of course, but um, with what Danny learns, especially from Tyrion being the final piece there, making her journey over to Westeros, we'll see what happens in season seven. But for this season, Tyrion spends most of the time waiting around for Danny to come back with the Dothraki. He doesn't know it. And dealing with not only, well, I'll start from the beginning. As we start, Tyrion is there. He's hanging out with Varys. They're trying to, they're trying to um, rule this city while Dario is out at the other places, holding it down. The other two cities, they're a Marine. And everything seems to be going okay. They complement each other. They're doing okay. Oh no, look, the Sons of the Harpy just burned all the boats. They have no more boats. There goes their whole idea, (laughs) their whole plan. Oops. Then they start to get attacked. And Tyrion says to Varys, hey, why don't you develop some little birds? And and Varys pays off um, a prostitute to tattle on the sons of the harpy and sends her and her son on a boat. He tries to pronounce her son's name. That kind of works, but not really. They do find out who the leaders are though. So it did work. And Tyrion has two or three conversations with Masande and Grey Worm where they tell dumb jokes and they're kind of funny scenes, but it's kind of gives us a little bit more of Tyrion. And it does show a little bit of, I kind of appreciate it, if anything, how the business of ruling or politics is mostly boring. It's just like people think it's so exciting being an actor, and then once you get into business, you hear about hurry up and wait. And you realize most of it is hurry up and wait. And it's the same thing. Uh, You know, our elections are coming up, and we're going to spend two years talking about a person who's going to inspire us and blah, blah, blah. And really their job is to get to do, is to do work, not to be on TV and inspire us, right? This is life. So I kind of like that we get a couple scenes where, you know, they're just, they're sitting up here in their golden palace while everything's going to crap and Tyrion's trying to play drinking games. Um, so some good scenes. But it's not until Danny arrives back that Tyrion ferments his bond with her, is able to work with her. And we see that the key to Danny is going to be alliances and working with other people and her being open to the fact that the problem with the Mad King wasn't always just that he burned everyone, it's that he didn't listen to anyone. And he thought he was the Oz great and powerful, and he did not have to consider anyone else's ideas. So Danny does, and she makes Tyrion officially her hand, and Tyrion is feeling good about it. Not much of a journey for Tyrion this season, though I do think he had some good scenes. And as far as Danny goes, I loved the Dothraki stuff. I thought it was great to bring her back to the beginning where she started 
to bring her to the end where she goes to Westeros. I mean, what does she really do? She gets to Dothraki. She brings them to Marine. They defeat the Masters. She tells Dario 2.0 he's got to stay behind. He's upset. We move on to season seven. I did love, though, again, the Dothraki stuff. And an interesting point. Danny uses her naked body through flames to project power and stands naked in front of her subjects as a symbol of transparency, boldness, confidence, and power. Cersei is walked naked through the streets and sees it as a uh, taking away of power, which it is, of course, and a way of stripping away all that is on top of her to show her um, vulnerable, naked, weak, exposed self. Just interesting the way two naked bodies can be portrayed in two vastly different ways. Interesting. I don't have much more to say about it. I was just thinking about it. It's just really interesting because when you see Danny there naked, um, it's like, wow, right on, you know, she's like, I don't care. I don't have anything to hide, but Cersei had so much to hide and perhaps that walk in effect unencumbered her. It had the opposite effect, right? Because at the bottom of Cersei is not strength and power, really. It's evil and vengeance and hate. There you go. Kind of cool. The Brotherhood and the Hound. Who's going to forget the Hounds? I don't have much more to say about Danny there. She's coming to Westeros. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I should say more, but I, I said it. The Brotherhood and the Hound. I love the Hound. Oh, man, this stuff when Swearingen appears in the medieval times, um, great stuff. When this first aired and we were watching it, got spoiled on the Hound, knew that the Hound was coming back, and I kind of have to admit that it took me a little bit out of the story, and it took me a little bit out of the journey that he was on and remembering what he had gone through, um, running away from the battle at um, King's Landing, his journey with Arya, then the Brotherhood, then further, I should say, with the Brotherhood, then Arya, um, then reinventing himself, rejuvenating himself, healing, and perhaps doing a little bit of um, growth, right, with this new group here, but not really changing, not becoming a totally new person. He seems, when we when we meet with him, he has recovered from his wounds, though some are going to last, his limp. But he is still keeping away from other people. It's not like, you know, he's converted or something. And I enjoyed that. I remember thinking when, the, when this first ran, 
oh, he's all of a sudden going to be try to become like a good guy or something. Like they're going for like a big Jamie turn with the hound. And they didn't. And I'm glad they didn't. And then when everybody gets killed, he takes over. He runs into the brotherhood. He takes out the guys who did him wrong. And his journey continues. And we don't really get much of where the hound is at, except that he has agreed to go on with the brotherhood because we have so much going on in this season. So it's really an abbreviated journey, save for that one episode. But I wanted to mention it because upon further reflection, I really enjoyed it. And I thought the cold open was cool. I thought the time and energy that they put into that set and those people and telling us about a people who post-war had no one and who felt guilty about the war, um, who, regardless of what side they were on, they had come together and they shared that trauma and that pain. And I thought that that continued what they had started in season four and five. And I was really pleased with that. And it was something that I must admit upon the first time I watched really didn't sink into me that they had, they were continuing that theme and that story with the hound. And that's why this was here. And there's a long lengthy monologue that Swearingen goes on where he talks about that. Right. And he does a sermon where he says, I killed this guy and I killed that guy. And the hound talks about who, what he's done. But at the end of it, the kind of ethos of the hound himself overtakes the story and is what it's really about because what happens? He won't fight, they kill him, and the hound has to be the one to pick up and do the job himself. And that is who this guy is and who he will continue to be. And I think that's why he's one of the most loved characters. He's like a really ornery Eeyore with an axe. (laughs) I like him a lot. The hound, baby. And the brotherhood, just glad that they're back in the show. Love them. Love the brotherhood. Theon and Yara. Theon and Yara. So there's not much of them this season. We pick up on them. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives because... We have the entry (laughs) of uh, a guy, Euron, who became a favorite pretty quickly. And uh, I'm going to like Euron a lot in season seven, I feel. Um, But Euron enters the fray here. Theon, of course, has jumped off the uh, Winterfell into the snow. He safely gets... Sansa off with Brienne, and then he breaks off to go home. He gets home, and before he can really even make his presence known, Euron kills his dad. Yara wants to be the king. They have their king's moot, or queen, I should say. They have their queen's king's moot, and Euron shows up. Yara and Theon take off with all the good boats. uh, Theon and Yara, I mean, Euron tells them, go home. Build me a thousand ships in 12 days. We got a TV show to make people. And uh, Theon and Yara go and get drunk in a really cool bar. And uh, that was a nice set there. And that was a nice location. 
And um, then they figure they're going to go to Danny. They go to Danny. They join up with Danny. It was good. Uh, They didn't spend too much time. I thought Theon's kind of redemption and turnaround was really good with Yara when he stood up for her. Um, Again, they didn't spend too much time on it. And I like that they didn't spend too much time on it. And we're going to see some fun stuff with them in season seven. Not much to talk about. Want to give a shout out to Davos. I already talked a little bit about him before, but he should be king. Um, I have it in my notes here, so I'm going to mention it. I really love Davos this season. I know uh, DJ Tim Hinesworth and myself got into a disagreement famously on a podcast because I said, you know, they 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 made the right choice by not killing uh, the Red Lady there. John did. And uh, I still stand by that. I watched the scene again. I tried to take DJ's side, but she brought John back to life. She's a connection to the magic stuff. You got to keep her around. And I just love Davos. Shout out. Sam and Gilly. Uh, this was a fun one. Sam and Gilly leave um, Castle Black soon after the Wildlings take over. Uh, Tormond and them. Sam's going to go be a maester and it's not safe for Gilly there. John agrees and they will not see each other for a long time after. They stop by Sam's house, which is absolutely breathtaking and like huge. <laughs> it's kind of like, what? That's his house? Wow. Um, and, you know, we go through the whole thing with Dickon and his pops and the sword and they run away. And they get to um, Sam's ultimate goal. He's going to be a maester. And uh, we don't get too much there, of course. They arrive, and we're going to get more of that in Season 7. But this was a nice little journey for Sam and Gilly. And Sam continues to develop and continues to assert himself. And it is probably the funniest moment of the entire season when he's going to leave little Sam and Gilly at his parents' house and he gives her a kiss and a hug and it's very dramatic and the music swells and he walks out the door and then Gilly is just standing there kind of like just stunned and like thinking, oh my, I have this whole new life and I just outed myself as a wildling, whatever. And Sam just opens the door and he says, you're coming with me. I can't do this. And I loved it. And then you could just see his confidence Once Sam decides he's going to do something, he does it. And I love that about him. And I love their journey. And I love how Gilly stood up to Sam's dad. That was great. If you all remember that. It was a good journey. And it forwards Sam's learning, his experience, getting out into the world. Because if he's going to be a part of this greater battle, he has to have seen some things more in the outside world shared the great experiences that he actually did have north of the wall, which is like so much of his life. He was in books and stuff like Tyrion, and now he gets to go out and experience it. And that's really wonderful to see. And Sam and Tyrion, I think, you know, they're good buds. Um, And uh, Gilly grows too. And like I said, she stands up, but she supports Sam and they are a great team 
and they're a great couple. And I love those two. And I think a lot of people think Sam could be king. In the end, hopefully there is no king. But Sam is great. And I, and I thought that his wonderment, too, when he finally gets to the library, is really wonderful and really fun. All right. Um, Bran, the Three-Eyed Raven, the White Walkers... Mirren, Mira, what's her name? Mira, Jojen, Uncle Benjen, the magic, the flashbacks, the Tower of Joy. This was the season where it was confirmed that Jon Snow is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and uh, Lyanna Stark. And it really had a big effect on me when I watched it this time around. Watching the journey of John and thinking about how often in the first season they mentioned 17 years ago. And just the guy they got to play young Ned is so awesome. I really love him. And if they do end up doing any prequels or anything that involved this time period again, or younger Ned, I hope they bring him back because I really liked him. Uh, and these quick scenes we get, even the, just the fight scene was awesome. Maybe my favorite fight, uh, singular, like little battle one-on-one of the season, not including like these huge other battles that happened, battle of the bastards, which we'll talk about too. I want to just have a little talk about that one. But um, this stuff was really great. And it's not often that you get flashbacks that have such, they just continue to have such great casting on this show. Characters that are immediately alive and inhabited by these actors and actresses and just ultimately immediately believable. Really wonderful stuff. And the whole Tower of Joy, both of the scenes that they have, uh, separated by, what, four episodes, I believe, are really just both fantastic. I really enjoyed them a lot. The parts where Bran is learning from the Three-Eyed Raven, who mysteriously looks very different. Kind of recognizable now. <laughs> um, and Leaf inside there with Hodor and Mira uh, are um, pretty good. I the it, It's a little awkward. The Hodor, the battle with all the dead and going through the door and how they're on the other side and chasing them. Maybe I'm just being a little bit critical. It's still a lot of fun. Uh, but, uh, and seeing them all on all on the walls of the tunnel as they're coming towards, um, uh, Hodor and Mira as they're pulling Bran is really amazing. That's a fantastic shot. And then how Leaf blows herself up with that little, um, incendiary magical device, a little awkward around the battling too. And like, kind of the white walkers and how they 
I don't really rem- know what the point was to kind of touch the ground and it explodes. <laughs> I don't know. I guess, you know, I, I don't know. It was a little bit more awkward this time for me, but I still enjoyed it. And I love this stuff with Bran has to know everything and become the three-eyed raven. I wish, I do wish that there was a little bit more of the, I don't know, I guess because I'm learning so much about the histories and stuff through um, Fire and Blood and and, uh, World of Ice and Fire and stuff and reading some of these books. It'd be cool if they had had a couple different more scenes, let them pop in some other places. Um, But when they do the White Walker stuff, I loved it, of course. And uh, LML and I talked about that scene in the show with the creation of the White Walker and the significance of not only it seems like Leaf is doing an incantation, but that he's tied to a werewood, the obsidian, all of it, the magical elements, the thought that the Night King carries that pain of his human life and perhaps is somehow, Elema had a great idea about him being kind of a symbiotic host to a spirit from another realm and perhaps wanting to escape this realm here. I really enjoyed that. Uh, Listen to that podcast. But all that stuff was great. And it's just, it's shot so beautifully and it's staged so beautifully. The effects are seamless. It's wonderful stuff. When the Night King touches Bran and finds where he is, but also gives him that brand on his arm, which we argued so much. If he passes the wall, the Night King can pass the wall. Are we, we never found that out. I mean, maybe in season eight, we'll, find out that we were right about that and that the only reason why the night king spoiler alert could eventually break the wall down and break its magic because it's supposed to have magic in the wall was because bran passed through it and he has his mark uh who knows maybe we will maybe we won't we shall see so i will conclude my discussion of season six with Uh, The kind of uh, one-two punch of Battle of the Bastards and Cersei blowing up the Sept of Baelor. Battle of the Bastards is incredible. If you have taken the opportunity to watch the the behind-the-scenes making of video and see the way that they changed what they were going to do, they worked with the natural light and the cloud cover the mud, how they worked everything into this scene. Uh, It's so realistic. It's so dirty and grimy and claustrophobic. And just in the same way that watching Hard Home again reminds me of the achievement that this show is, watching Battle of the Bastards was just watching thousands, hundreds of people working together to create Art. It's just, I don't know any other way to say it. It's absolutely spellbinding. It's impossible not to be taken in by it and sucked in and feel that claustrophobia and feel that just all the blood and the guts and people climbing other bodies with missing an arm and legs. And oh, God, it's just like 
it, 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 it's really, it, you know why a generation of men were psychologically damaged by trench warfare. Uh, that's the closest we know to it on such a large scale. You can point to that World War One and such. And then to see this, it's just, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And the emotional import of John making the decision to try to save Rickon, Ramsey continuing, and I'll take a moment just to talk about Ramsey. I haven't covered Ramsey too much. I'm not a huge fan of Ramsey. I wasn't a huge fan when I watched the show. I'm not a huge fan of watching it back. I think they had I th- I think there was a lost opportunity with this character and if we had gotten some moments of I don't know uh vulnerability if that's even possible with Ramsey or just something more than just being an evil sadistic lunatic we got a little of it when he became a Bolton um you know, when his father told him that he was going to have a brother this season, he takes him out. The scenes with him and the car Starks and the, you know, that's kind of cool. The Umbers, that's kind of cool. Um, but there, I don't know that you can see some real growth in Ramsey throughout the seasons or it just, it's the same thing over and over. I just wasn't taken by him. I actually like the actor. He was on a British show. I can't remember what it was called. Donald turned me on to it. Um, what was it? It was, uh, I can't, I'm sorry. I can't remember people out there. know you can look it up. It was about like kids with superpowers and it was really fun. And I loved him on that show. And on that show, he, there was, his character had sides and they used his evil kind of look at times. It's like, but it's just uh, in the show, it was just too much. And I can't get, you know, I try to, figure out a way to talk about Ramsey and get into the character. And I really can't, I don't, I'm not compelled by him. Um, I just felt it was with Theon, then Sansa, then Rickon. You just wanted him to be killed at the end. And then that wasn't even satisfying because of the pain that he's done to people. Um, They still live with that pain and trauma. And it was just, I'm not a huge fan. I'm glad that they took him out here. I wish that the character would have been fleshed out more and given us a reason to maybe even care about him, but that's not what happened. So Ramsey dies. Bruce Bolton died. A lot of people died this season. Um, But that one-two punch of the Battle of the Bastards, 1-1, followed by, you know, you get an episode off, then you come back with Cersei blowing up uh, the sept in the very beginning of the episode, the piano loved it, loved the whole episode. It just, I love the way they put that in the beginning of the episode, not the end. Um, I always forget about that. And I forgot this time too, but then I remember when the piano starts, Oh, I remember the bell that you see ringing and then you see it flying. <laughs> later. Um, this season for me, was a really solid season and I do like it more than I do than I liked four and five. And I think that there are complaints of course, with characters and arcs and choices that Dan and Dave made that perhaps will not be in the books. Um, 
let's remember that they were new showrunners when they took over this show. It took them so long. If you listen to the show I did with Bubba of the Joffrey of podcast, we kind of went through and, and he, like I has worked in the business, knows how hard it is to do these things, the development process, how long it took them to get this. They've been doing this for 15 years. It's been a project of theirs. And they also, though, learned better to be filmmakers as time went on. And they learned what worked, the stuff that they did when they had George's story and then when they didn't. And I think that the show does change and and you get a, you get a, a little bit of more of the, and in season seven too, maybe like the checking in vibe, time and, and distance are lessened. And the story is more at a propulsive rate. I understand that people feel as though you don't have that same kind of laid, you can sit with the characters, you know, and pick things up that are not so, things aren't thrown at you so obviously hammered over your head that they're going to happen. The foreshadowing and such was a little bit more, more bookish. Okay. Because they had the books. But this season, I think, showed to me that these guys are very capable. And I look forward to what they do next. Uh, more so, well, if it's the Star Wars stuff. And I really think this season shows that they they did turn on a little bit more of the filmmaking stuff. I noticed throughout this season, the techniques, the cold opens, separating characters, um even just using the camera a little bit more, moving it around. I appreciate that. And I appreciate this season and I really enjoyed it. And I'm hoping to finish this podcast (laughs) so I can get to season seven, start busting out that tonight. And this week, get you the season seven review before season eight starts. So I hope I covered everything. I probably missed a few things here and there. But um, I've enjoyed this rewatch. I enjoy that everyone is uh, giving me great feedback on it. I love that. And I just love taking this journey. I know so many other people are doing rewatches. And uh, we're, you know, we're all in this together. (laughs) So I do want to remind you, go to DVRpodcast.com. Again, this show will have a very different feel once the season starts. We will be doing an initial reaction every Sunday night, me with a guest. I'm going to be announcing those guests as they come, little surprises. On Monday night, DJ Tim Hines will be hosting a live call-in on TalkShoe. Look at Twitter, look at the show notes. You'll be able to get the link for that. On Wednesday, Heath and I will record our deep dive and probably release that Thursday or Wednesday night. And on Friday, Mike and Tracy are going to do their feedback on a book reader, more feedback type of thing. And it's going to be awesome. So we're going to have four different podcasts. It's not just going to be me talking. It's going to be a whole host of other voices, including your own. We want to hear from you. We want to hear feedback. And of course, I always forget to say, we're going to be here for the prequel, any other Game of Thrones shows that come on. So I'm not doing a swan song here for this podcast because it's going to probably be going until I'm like 65 years old. So there's no swan song. Game of Thrones continues. The world continues. And uh, we'll continue putting on podcasts. And also remember, go to guestthethrone.com. Fill out your pool. 
You know, I was thinking I might do one just with my wife and I, right? That's fun, just the people you watch. Then you do it with other people. You can join other people, um, make a whole crew and make your death pool. See who you think is going to live or die. Guestthethrone.com. It's a great way for the community to come together. And I've been talking to those guys and we'll see. We might have something to announce. We'll see how it goes. Those are cool dudes and they're all about the community too. And um, they happen upon something really fun. And I'm really enjoying the fact that uh, uh, even getting to know them and everybody else in the community, it's always awesome when new people come on and have a cool idea that gets us thinking and gets us trying to figure out, baby, trying to guess, see what happens next. It's going to be fun because, you know, there could be questions. Who lives? Who dies? Are they alive? White Walker? Who knows? You got to keep up with it. Guess the throne, baby. All right. Thanks a lot. DVRpodcast.com. This has been fantastic. I'll be talking to you soon. Lots more content this week. We're going to be dropping tons of podcasts, Winterfells. A lot of stuff coming out. All right. Peace.